Wow, what timing. <laughs> My mic was all tangled up. Um, okay. Let's say now you're going on a, a mission trip uh, in, inspired by God, that God promises to send you on this extremely important mission trip and that he's going to take care of your entire itinerary. And God promises that he will make all the reservations for where you're going to stay and what flights you're going to take and all of that. God's going to set it all up for you. Now, how wonderful is this? Because God has unlimited wealth. It's like your richest uncle, if you have such a one, who says, I am going to plan a trip for you. I'm going to take care of all the details. With unlimited wealth, where would you imagine that God would have you stay? Let's say that your first destination is a major city. Are you going to stay at a five-star hotel? Or is God going to put you in some seedy motel in some kind of dangerous-looking neighborhood or something? And that's kind of what we have here today is... The Son of God comes from heaven. He's God himself. And where does God have him stay? Literally, to grow up. And it's in a dump. I didn't say it's a dump, but it's, it's looked upon as a place of ridicule and derision and uh, rejection. And that's where the Son of God gets to stay. He doesn't stay at a five-star hotel in like the greatest city in the world. And guess what? Neither do we. So let's open up in prayer. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. And let's start with prayer and thank God for our time together to hear his word and be able to be just so grateful and thankful for the truth that he provides for us through his word, through the gospel, and over time how God opens up our hearts to the reality of his plan for us. Um, and so with humility and reverence, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together to be able to hear your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who you sent into this world to be our Savior. And he's that and more, our King, our High Priest, our friend, our husband, our life. He is the very life that we possess. As you reveal to us, Father, through your spirit and your word, what that life is, what it really is about, and how to walk in it. We're grateful and also extremely challenged. So we ask for your help. Uh, we are sheep, as you say. We are stones in the wall, as you say. We are, uh, but we are more importantly the bride of Christ. And, but still, as such, we are weak and in need of great help. So we ask through your spirit that our hearts, each of us, would be enlightened by your word, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have uh, five prophecies in Matthew 1 and 2 that are all revealing Jesus as the Son of God, as the King of the Jews, as the Messiah, as the Son of David, uh, as Israel, as we saw yesterday, and as the Savior. And also, you know, as this is not just in Matthew's first two chapters, but everywhere, that he is the one and only life for any human being. And um, unfortunately, all will come to know that uh, at judgment. And those who reject him and don't see that life and know it for what it is will see what they missed in some way. But <clears throat> for those of us who are believers, it's a 
important, it's a must that we see what this life really is. It's because when we become born again and saved, we don't, God doesn't download all the, the information into our brains. We've still got, we've got a long way to go and a lot to learn. And there's things in our hearts that are wrong that have to be replaced or uh, unraveled, if you will. Um, and new things have to be put in our hearts that are of the truth. We have to be convinced of them. And we also have to live the truth. You can't just know the scripture. You have to know it and live it. You have to know it and walk it. And therefore, in these first two chapters of Matthew, we're presented with who is the Christ. And it is his origin, uh, but as the origin is here, not so much about how he grows up or how he was born. Luke does more of that than Matthew does. But the, the actual question of who is the Christ and who is this Messiah, who is this Jesus that's born of a virgin. As we saw yesterday, these prophecies show us that he is Israel. and He is all that Israel failed to be. Therefore, he is God's son, uh, but he's eternally God's son. But as a human being, he's God's son. And so, therefore, the son of God, son of man, there's a great mystery there, which none of us are going to unravel in this lifetime, but it's the very truth that God from heaven claims him to be, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so, uh, when we ask ourselves, what is the Christ, what we see in this last prophecy uh, where he is a Nazarene, that he's come into the world to suffer. And he didn't, he's not come into the world to be elevated, to be even accepted. Throughout the Old Testament, this is revealed to the Messiah, that he won't be accepted, that he will be rejected, that he will be persecuted, and that he will suffer. And so he comes into the world to do that. And what does this reveal? And, well, we first we have to know why does he suffer? And all of us should know that, that he suffered for us. It's not for him. It's not that he, so he could show himself, well, wow, look how humble I am. But he did it for us. Because there's no other way by which we are going to find and see the love of God except by being trained and changed, and all of that requires suffering. You know, it's, nobody likes to change. Learning is, is a... a uh, transformation and transformation is hard. Um, I'm not saying, as you, you know, and we all know this, it's not all suffering every moment of every day, but there's, there's some hard work to be done. There's some disappointment. There's some changes that need to be made. There's some losses that need to happen. And Christ comes into the world to show you how much he loves you. It's such an uh, absorbing love with him. That he will not stop until you're changed the way he wants you to be. And for a human being to do this, it's the, it's the greatest, we say it, it's egotism to the nth degree. That I am going to do things to you to make you conform to me. Well, that's what tyrants do. Unsuccessfully. And uh, for any human being to do it, any fallen human being to do it. Actually, any perfect human being to do it is an ultimate in arrogance. But with God, it is not. Because God is truly the standard. No human being is. If I say, I want you to conform to me, well, that's just my pride and arrogance, and who am I? But when God says that, 
You can say, well, who are you? And you should. Who is he? Who is this Christ? He is never going to stop working on you until you are completely transformed to his image. And this is because he loves you. To settle for less would be to love less. Right? We, he loved, we'll go into that in the future at some point. But this is all a manifestation of love. So, he will say, when we get to chapter 5, it's the first of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is all lead. This chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 in Matthew are all leading to that one, that first discourse, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. So what does it mean to be poor? As my title is, is it, is it really blessed to be poor? Is he talking about being poor? And he absolutely is. So we give it all away and just live in a cardboard box somewhere on the street. That's not what he means. Because you could be that and not be poor. I mean, you are economically, but in your heart, you may be full of pride and lust. And What God wants for us is to be like him. Is God concerned? Was Jesus concerned about how much money he had? How much stuff he had? Couldn't he have had everything? Would it have been a sin for Christ to have money? No, because it's not sinful to be rich. But he poor on purpose to show us the way. And then he's also a Nazarene to show us the way. So let's get to it. Matthew 2.19. And when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, uh, his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Because Archelaus was a... Uh, We could use some choice words for him, just like Herod. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city of Nazareth. Now, in Luke's account, it would seem that Joseph and Mary are likely from Nazareth, so it would make sense that that's where they would return. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, notice prophets is plural. So it's not one prophet. This is in other, all the other four prophecies that Matthew has given us in chapters 1 and 2. It's been one prophet, one specific prophet, whose prophecy we can easily find. It's Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. Their, their, their words are there. They're easy to find. But here, we can't find it anywhere. There's not one place in your Old Testament, any, any prophet that you're going to find, he was a Nazarene. You're not going to find it anywhere. So prophets, what does it mean? Well, first and foremost, for Joseph and Mary to return, if they are from Nazareth, it seems like they are, for them to return to where they came from makes sense. Even if it is a nowhere place that people made fun of and derided and thought was not worthy of much, still for them it's home. But their son, Jesus, is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. <laughs> and, and, you know, for him to live there, that's a different story. So the fifth 
notes we have here is the fifth of the Old Testament prophecy in Matthew 1 and 2, he shall be called the Nazarene. So it's not one prophet. Now, there's a couple of theories as to where this comes from that I think don't work, should, but I should give them to you. And one of them is the explanation that he, Jesus, would be a Nazarite. I can see I spelled that wrong in my notes if you're looking at it. I hope I fix it. But a Nazarite is, in Numbers chapter 6, uh, a Jew who would take a vow of ceremonial clen- cleansing, uh, meaning being ceremoni- ceremonially pure until his vow is over, to not touch anything dead, to not drink any wine, to actually have no association with the grape at all, and to not cut their hair. And famously, Samson was a Nazarite. And famously, Samson violated <laughs> everything but cutting his hair, and then he violated cutting his hair. Um, but the Lord was not a Nazarite. So that explanation is not correct. He says in Matthew, uh, Matthew writes in Matthew 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Uh, there's nothing to indicate that Jesus did not, that he abstained completely from wine or that he took a Nazarite vow. So this, this theory is out. The other explanation is that this term comes from a Hebrew word in Isaiah 11.1. 1. And Isaiah 11.1, 1, clearly about the Messiah, says, Then a shoot shall spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this word, Hebrew word for branch, is netzer. Now that's similar in sounding to Nazareth. But one's a Hebrew word, one's a Greek word, and you know, no, Matthew isn't indicating anything here that this is actually true. This, so, as I say here, this is a stretch. Uh, it is a big stretch. So I would reject this outright. But those two that I just said are fairly popular out there, so if you ever hear them, you know, they, you'll know where they came from. Uh, my view, which agrees, I think, with most, with most that take this view, I think most do take this view, is that the, the fact that he would be called a Nazarene means that he's spoken of as despicable. And this... Not only, I mean, it fits with the Gospels, it fits with his life, it fits with the Old Testament, and it fits with us. Uh, and so it fits in many ways, and that's why I like it. Uh, even if we're wrong about this, the truths that we learn from this are true. So <clears throat> it's important that we explore it this way because we learn more about our Messiah and we learn more about us. And this will really set us free. It's a vital lesson, especially in our material world. Uh, This view connects Matthew's reference, he will be called a Nazarene, with the general tenor of the Old Testament that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. So let's see that. We're going to see a number of passages. And remember, and you can look again at it right there in, in your scripture, Uh, In verse 23, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Prophets, plural. That's the only time that Matthew in chapters 1 and 2 uses prophets, plural. So we're going to look at a few of those. And the first one who is acting as a prophet is David. Let's look at Psalm 22, 6 through 8. 
Psalm 22, 6. Now, if you look at Psalm 22, 1, you can see this is clearly messianic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and then if you skip down to verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is word for word what they said around the cross. And we'll see this also in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness where Satan says, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. It sounds so much like the people around the cross saying, come down from the cross. In other words, don't do the Father's plan, do your plan. And this he will not do. And he's teaching us, don't do your plan. Even if you're hungry, even if you know you want to do it so bad, do His will, not yours. The reward in it is priceless. It's beyond. So anyway, not to get distracted here, but notice what we see of the Son of Man. He's to be what? Despised by the people, a worm and not a man. They sneer at me. A Nazarene. Look at verse 13. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. It looks very much like what happened at the cross. This happened throughout his life that he's rejected. Go to Psalm 69, 7. So remember, it's prophets, plural. So we see another psalm. Again, this is also messianic, as you'll see. And when we say messianic, we mean it's a psalm that is in reference to the Messiah. Whether the writer of the psalm knows he's writing about the Messiah or not is, is not an issue. It is referring to the Messiah as it's quoted in the New Testament. So, 69.7, because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. So we see here, borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. Verse 8, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This verse 9 is quoted in the New Testament. As in reference to when Christ cleanses the temple with the whip, zeal for your house has consumed me. But notice, born reproach, dishonor. Look at verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Verse 21 is clearly, uh, it's depicted in the Bible as a reference to the cross when they gave him vinegar on the sponge at the end of the reed. And, but, so this is about him, but notice also in verse 21, we have reproach, broke his heart, made him sick, looked for sympathy, found none. He's rejected. He's despised. He's a Nazarene. Go to Isaiah 49. We were here yesterday. Isaiah 49, 7. Now we go to the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation. The perfect Son of Man comes into the world to save the world. And this is what he receives. The despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, which the second part of this verse uh, is about how he will, um, you know, as it says in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, he will rise up. So he becomes obedient to the point of death, but then he's exalted, and he will be exalted, and that's in the second part here. He says, princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. But, again, in the first part of verse 7, he is despised and abhorred. Now, that's the second servant song. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. That's the second one. Go to Isaiah 53. This is the last or the fourth servant song. Isaiah 53, 1. Same theme now. Rejected. Abhorred. Uh, what other words have we seen? Reproach. I'm sick. Broke my heart. Looked for sympathy. There was none. Born dishonor. Dishonor has covered my face. Born reproach and uh, despised by the people. 53.1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. See, and that's a part of it too, this humility of the Son of Man. This is God as a man, and he doesn't look special. This is done on purpose. It's not that God, you know, God said, all right, I'm going to make you a body out of Mary. And you're like, wow, I could have, you know, I could have made that better. I could have made you more handsome, you know, something like that. But he's just a man. Not just, but he's like us. So no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. How many people in our world now, amongst Christians as well, are so absorbed with how they look? He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Same theme, right? Despised, not esteemed, a man of sorrows, forsaken. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? We deserve the stroke. He took it in our place. He became our substitute. He makes us new creatures in him, a new humanity. But to him... It was despised, uh, oppression, judgment, taken away, and on and on with all the words that we've just seen, forsaken, and so on. Now, you say, well, okay, now that we're born again and saved, we're in him, right? Now we're saved, that we shouldn't be forsaken, that we shouldn't be despised, that we shouldn't be uh, acquainted with grief. But God is going to say, yes, you should be. Because this is how he was and exalted into heaven. Yeah, when we get into heaven, 
this won't be true anymore. But while we're here in these bodies, I don't care how long you've been saved, this must be true. And I'm, I'm not saying it's all suffering all the time. That's asceticism. People buy into that. We are to have joy. Right? We do. We're happy. We have joy. We're um, content. We're at peace. We're tranquil. But when it comes to the flesh, the world, to sin, and all of that comes upon us that tempts us, that we are to hold our ground against, it is going to be something at which God is teaching us to reject that which the world esteems. And he does. See, who is he rejected by? Not his father, not by the angels, but by the world. And this causes him suffering. Right? Who are we rejected by? Look, and if you're a buddy with the world, which he was not, then this won't be true of your life. If you're, if you're a worldling, if you're a believer, a carnal believer, we see this like with the Corinthians, uh, if you're a carnal believer or a worldling, then this is not going to be true. But if it's not true also, then you're not going to discover the life that God has made for you. The life that God has made for you must be separate from the world and separate from sin. It's called holiness or sanctification. It's to be separated from the sin, from sin, the world, the flesh, and so on. And when that is true, these things, all these words, despised, forsaken, of the world, not of God, and certainly not of those in your life who are fellow believers who love God like you do. But there will be many, in many circumstances, of which there will be forsakenness, despise, persecution, and so on. And Daniel 9.26 is my last one. Then after the 62 weeks of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, in Daniel 9, then after 62 weeks, the angel says to Daniel, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. In the sanctuary. That prince is the Antichrist. Um, but notice, he'll be cut off, not accepted, rejected. This is him as a Nazarene. Now, this goes along with Matthew's work in his gospel, where Matthew shows, like the other gospel writers do, that Jesus is humble and rejected. And here are scriptures for this. In Matthew 8:20. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isn't that odd? <laughs> this is the Son of God, the creator of the world, yet he has nowhere to sleep. What hotel is God going to book for you on your, your journey of his mission for you? Who knows? Does it matter? It shouldn't. 11.20 Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. I'm humble in heart. 12.19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to even advertise himself. 15.8, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He's rejected. In 21.5, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. Right? Humble and mounted on a donkey. He's humble and he's rejected. 
So Nazareth is a despised place. That's where we're going to go with here, and it does fit uh, pretty much the Gospel of Matthew, and it fit, it's the best theory for the prophets say, this is to fulfill what the prophets say, that he would be a Nazarene. Nazareth, although it looks like it's in a pretty nice place, uh, you know, it's good real estate, but uh, out here, uh, off of, you know, away from the Sea of Galilee, just far enough for it to be, uh, it's just not a popular or wasn't a popular place. And if you go to John 1, we'll finish up in the Gospel of John here to see this. And John brings this out for us, that Nazareth was a despised place. And this happened in John 1, verse 45, the first disciples, which we think are John and Andrew, who come across the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist points him out to John and Andrew, and they follow him. They spend the day with him, and Jesus talks to them. And uh, then Philip discovers and believes this is the Messiah, and he goes and finds his friend Nathanael. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, in verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. And then he identifies him, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So when he says whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, they're talking about we found the Messiah and he is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says something here very interesting. It's the same thing that Jesus said to John and Andrew when they were following him. Jesus stopped and he turned around and he said, what do you follow me for? <laughs> and they they say, well, uh, we want to see where you live. And Jesus says, come and see. Right? This, this truly can be a, a tagline, if you will, for the Christian life. Come and see. But to come means to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Daily deny yourself. And that gets right back to what we're, this topic is. If I deny the world and my flesh and I deny sin, I'm not going to become sinless, but I fight like heck against it and against the world. And I live, see, when I live according to the manner he wants me to live, I'm seeing him. The longer and more I do that, the more I'm seeing him. God, if, if I have a whole bunch of doctrine in my mind and I live like a carnal Christian or a Corinthian you're not seeing him. You've got some knowledge in your heart, but you're not seeing anything. The Christian way of life was meant to be lived. And so, and Philip says the same thing that Jesus said, come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, why would he say that? It, probably because it was a colloquial term or phrase. So God knew that the leaders... Um, would expect the Messiah to come from Bethlehem, correct. When the Magi come to Jerusalem, they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? The scribes and the chief priests uh, in Jerusalem know. They know it's prophesied in Micah 5.2 that the prince will come out of Bethlehem. So, as we'll see here coming up in the Gospel of John, the people know this. The people in the crowd say, what? he's supposed to be from Bethlehem, isn't he? 
Like they know this. But yet God has him in Galilee in Nazareth. Now, this is not announced uh, anywhere. You know, it's not announced that, by the way, it's here in the scripture, maybe, you know, a few lines later in Micah, that he's going to move from Bethlehem to Nazareth. It's not indicated. Could God the Father have left Jesus in Bethlehem? Of course. Why do they flee? Because of Herod and because of Herod's son, who's just as bad, and so they don't remain in Bethlehem. The family could have grown up in, Jesus could have grown up in Bethlehem, but it wasn't God's will and it also, therefore, it was God's will for the whole people to know that he'd come from Bethlehem, but that he should have come from Bethlehem, and he did. But everybody knows he's a Galilean. And you never hear once Jesus in the gospel say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I'm, look, here's my birth certificate. I was born in Bethlehem. I only lived in Nazareth. You never hear him say it once. In fact, he happily identifies with it. And he's showing us something. Do not be conformed to the lusts and the riches and the glitter and the fame and the nobility of this world. Do not. Because that, this world is not me. And by the way, I am God who has omniscience. There's no contradictions here. I have made this world and allowed it to fall. And I've allowed it to fall and I put you in it as a fallen person, knowing full well that you would become a regenerated person and become my son or my daughter. And I want you to choose. Do not be conformed to this world. Does that sound familiar to you? It does, right? From the scripture over and over. Don't be a friend of the world. That's 1 John chapter 2. Lust of the eyes. What does he say is the world? The friend of the world. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and boastful pride of life. Jesus is like, I'm not there. And if you're in there, you're not seeing me. And your life's not going to be transformed. So, God has him in Nazareth. Then the same Isaiah 49, we looked at yesterday. We just looked at it a little bit today. He says in 49.2, servant song. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Now, I'm not really sure that this prophecy represents the fact that he would be anonymously growing up in Nazareth, but it seems to fit. So, notice it from the people. Go to John 7. And John 7, we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Interesting, we don't have time to go into it all, but Jesus went to this feast secretly. He's in Jerusalem at the time. And this is the Feast of Tabernacles, so there's a lot of out-of-towners here. And so this was one of the feasts where everybody, all the males of who can make it are commanded to attend in the city, in Jerusalem, And so there's a lot of people around. And there's a lot of of out-of-towners who are Jews. So some are accepting him and some are not. And there's big arguments starting to accrue. Because he's become famous by this point. I mean, you you do as many miracles as he did. You're going to become famous. 
So in verse 40, 740, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, and this is after Jesus taught, this certainly is, a pro- is the prophet. Now, when they say the prophet, they mean the one in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses said there'd be a prophet coming greater than me. Listen to him. And that's what they're saying. This certainly is the prophet, meaning the Messiah. Others were saying this is the Christ. Same thing, the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? You see that? And you don't hear Jesus say, wait, 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 I am the Messiah. I'm not really from Galilee. I'm from Bethlehem. Let me show you, know, let me show you my accreditation or something. Actually, his birth record would be in the temple. He was circumcised in the temple on the eighth day. His birth record, he could go there. Go to the temple and get a note from the high priest that says, look, I'm from Bethlehem. I'm tried and true Judean. But no, he doesn't. Why? Because he doesn't care. What do you care? Wait, I mean, he cares about fulfilling all the prophecy concerning himself, but he cares nothing about the opinion of the people as in terms of where he's from. Other than he's from heaven... And that by his words and his works, his miracles, that they are convinced, not by his pedigree, but by him himself, his person, that this is the Christ. So they say, some say he's the Christ. Others say the Christ isn't supposed to come from Galilee. Has not the scripture said in verse 42? Uh, if you're listening to the audio, my battery died again, so that's my fault. So, proceeding. <clears throat> Verse 42, John 7:42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Correct? They're quoting, just like in Matthew 1, in, or sorry, Matthew 2, that he's from Bethlehem, Micah 5:2. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Continuing now, this gets even more interesting. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why didn't you bring him? So the Pharisees and chief priests sent some thugs of their own to go and arrest him. And they said, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? The officers said, answered, notice their answer. Never has a man spoken in the way this man speaks. In other words, they went there to arrest him, and then they started listening, and then they were like, wow. And who knows, some of them may become saved. They start to you know, believe in him. The Pharisees then answered in verse 47, have you, not all, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? As if that's the standard. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. So now Nicodemus pipes up. Nicodemus, he who came to him before in John 3, being one of them, said to them, 
Our law does not judge a man. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Nicodemus is a voice of reason. They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now we learn a lot. First off, Jesus is remaining in the Father's quiver. Going back to this up here on the board. He's concealed me in the palm of his hand. He's remaining there. Because it's not his time to reveal himself. He will when he comes in on the donkey. This whole thing about, isn't he from Bethlehem? What's he doing from Galilee? And this, he has lived his ministry with this stigma and he doesn't change it. He doesn't say, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't, he doesn't say, look, disciples, go out to all the areas and tell everybody I'm from Bethlehem. I renounce Nazareth, this, this little town. He does not. Why? He's walking the path before we do. Because you and I are nothing. I don't care what your birth is, your pedigree, how much money you have, how nice your house is, or how nice it ain't. None of us are worth anything. Now, we're worthwhile to God. He loves us so much. He loves us more than I can possibly tell you. I hope that you and I both figure out how much he loves us before we leave this earth. We won't, actually. He loves us so much that he will not stop until he changes us into what he what pleases him. But alone, on our own, what we possess, these bodies, what we own, where we're from, what our reputation is, meaningless. And so, and, and, and that can be very depressing. <laughs> it sounds like it. But when you're given his life, then... Your birth is his birth. Right? You're born again, as it says to Nicodemus here, and back in chapter 3. Born of the flesh is flesh. You can't enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. And we are. If you're a believer, you are. And everything changes now. And now that you're in him, you have the ability to be changed. But God, now, choices still matter here. And as I try and wrap my mind around all that God has done here in human history, you know, one thing that is clear is that choice always matters. Even as believers. He is not going to force us to be good. He's not going to change our minds so much that they only think good thoughts. He's not going to change our ears so that they don't even hear anything evil ever again and they only hear the good stuff, right? Like he he has the power to do anything he wants. But he leaves us to be able with now in Christ, with the ability to discern with wisdom and see in our world what is good and what isn't. And then like Christ, say no to that which is not good knowing full well you're going to suffer for it. Your flesh isn't going to like it. Now, uh, here's a great one. 
way far forward now, years in advance, they call Paul the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. <laughs> right? These are the, uh, uh, some people sent from the chief priests and, and uh, their elders that have come. This is right after Paul was arrested. He's in prison in Caesarea, and they send a bunch of guys with a lawyer to the governor to say, look, you need to throw this guy away in prison and throw away the key. And they say, here he is. Here's Paul, a ringleader of the sect of what? The Nazarenes. They don't mean this in a pretty way. Look at John. Now, when the mob comes for Jesus, he identifies with the title. He is the I am. Look at John 8. Since we're in John, look at John 18.3. John 18.3. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. Right? It's derogatory. He said to them, I am. You can scratch off the he. You can keep it, but you know, it's I am. That's what he says. Ego, I me. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am... They drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, snapping them out of their stupor, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he answered, I told you, I am. Now, in, he says, Ego I me here. In Greek, you only need the I me. I me is first person singular. I me means I am. When he adds the pronoun ego, which means I, He's emphasizing himself. He's, he's saying, I myself am. So, he identifies with the title because he identifies with us. He has reconciled you to himself through his cross. He couldn't reconcile your sin. God has do nothing with sin. He loathes it. Nothing to do with it. You can't reconcile sin in God. He can only pay for sin, and he did. You can reconcile a person. You don't reconcile sin, you reconcile a person. And he reconciled all who believe upon him. As believers still, none of us are worthy of praise, acclaim, or honor. All of us are Nazarenes. So, you know, I, I now when I after I've done this study, I drive by. If I see a church, Church of the Nazarene, yeah, I'm like, yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, I I know that I don't know all that they believe. I know I've heard some of it, and I don't agree with all that they teach. But you know, the title is a good title. If you remember what this means, you are this, <clears throat> and I'll prove it to you. Go to First Corinthians one. I told you we'd finish in John, but I lied. First <clears throat> Corinthians one eighteen. None of us are worthy of anything. And God has entered us into union with Christ. And so whatever comes to us that is good comes from heaven. Whatever comes to us that is good comes from our Lord, not from us. 
And so what this does for you and for me is to eradicate this awful thing that all of us still have a problem with, and that is pride. Pride in what I have, pride in what, you know, what DNA I have. Some people are born with better brains than others. Some people are born with better bodies. Some people rarely get sick. Some people get sick all the time. Some people are handsomer or prettier, and some are not. Some have physical conditions. Some don't. Some are brought up in terrible households where they were abused. And some are brought up in wonderful households where they were loved. And all of us can take pride in either one. And I do mean the people who are brought up in poverty and and filth. I've seen people take pride for this. I've seen people who are drug addicts take pride for how much drugs they could do. And they, they, they become proud about it. But also the people who have money and who are moral, they can be proud. But all of us are Nazarenes. And he's the son of God. And he lived this way to show us the way. Because in this world, it's the only way. Because it's the way to God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Right? Man's cleverness. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased, well pleased, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, because the world thinks the gospel is foolish. For indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. To Jews the stumbling blocks to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you and I are saved because we believe something that the world considers foolish, the gospel. And to us, that gospel turns out to be the very power of God and also the wisdom of God. So then Paul says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Notice, according to the flesh. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be wise. You must be. But according to the standards of this world, we reject it. Does it mean that you can't know worldly stuff? No. I mean, it's wonderful to have a skill in this world or to learn wonderful things in this world. But if your standard of wisdom is based on worldly things, then you're a fool. I could be a complete expert in philosophy or literature or a medical doctor. I could be the greatest heart surgeon in the planet, save life after life after life. And if that is what I truly love to do and that's it, I'm a fool. Compared to heaven fixing human hearts is nothing. Saving souls. Changing people's hearts. That's everything. 
So God has chosen, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. I'm a Nazarene. But by his doing you are in Christ, not by your doing, by his doing, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Notice what Christ became in Christ Jesus by God's doing. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, which is living holy, and redemption, which, by the way, is forgiveness of sin. Really nice how Paul here writes out our sanctification, which is a scary word for us because it means we have to be holy each and every day. But then we also have redemption for when we fail, we're forgiven. And because of all of this, Paul then says, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, this phrase, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord, comes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. And I'll just read it for you. We just got to close up here. But Paul takes a snippet of this. And I I really think that when the writers, they intend for us to go look it up. I mean, it would be if Paul wrote you a letter and then put here and you can see that it's a quote from the Old Testament. And you're like, well, thanks, Paul. And you didn't go check it out. Come on. (laughs) This is a letter to you from the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, that's a Hebrew word, chesed, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Don't boast in your wisdom or your might or your riches. Boast that you know me. And see, so this Paul's phrase here, not many mighty, not many noble. Look, we're all Nazarenes, but we can all know the Lord. And if we know the Lord, our boast is not in ourselves, but it's in him. And do you see where your focus of your life goes? Just like with Christ. The focus of your things and your energy and your relationships. All of it from the source that is pure. How I live my life is like Him. How I love my friends and my spouse and my neighbors, like my enemies, like Him. My wisdom, like Him. My joy, like him. How I handle suffering, like him. How I do difficult things, like him. It's life indeed. It is life indeed. And God is not going to quit on you, by the way, until it happens. And he's going to make you so. He loves you so much that he'll make you hurt, hurt, hurt. So that you'll get it. Thank God he does. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for all things that you've provided for us through Christ our Lord. 
Thank you that you've revealed to us in him this one, this Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, Lord, Master, Creator of the heavens and the earth, lived his life as a Nazarene, as a humbled man who was rejected, so that he could walk the path for us. Because in this world, we must say no to the things that are not of you. And when we do that, we will be outcasts. But that's okay, because he was. And in the end, we won't be outcasts forever. We know this, Father, but we wait patiently on you. We ask that your wisdom would change our hearts where needed, and we ask